You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, which is in the letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I'm delighted to, uh, to be back together again. I was gone just a little bit there as uh, one of my daughters and I went to visit some colleges, actually all the way across the country in California. That's uh, something to think about. And, uh, and then spent a couple days uh, at a conference and now back and looking forward to spending this time together in God's Word. As I think about my family, the wits, uh, and uh, really my upbringing, I, I think about um, kind of what the wits have had over the years to offer to the world. And I can think of really three main attributes that the wits have been known for. The first attribute is height, actually, believe it or not. Uh, most of the men on the wit side of the family have been 6'5 and taller. My mom was, uh, actually fi- is actually 5'3". So that's why I am as tall as I am. I would have loved to have been 6'8". And mom, I'm not mad at you about that. You know, I, I, uh, I've come to terms with all of that and happy with how tall both of us are. But, uh, you know, most of the women were over six feet, so there's a lot of height on the wit side of the family. Uh, the second attribute that our, the wits had to offer to the world really are these beautiful green and blue eyes that we have. In fact, my senior year in high school... I won the senior superlative for prettiest eyes. That was, I mean, of all the things you could offer, that's what I brought. And then third, and probably most important at the top of the list, I think, is probably sarcasm, which is probably my main spiritual gift, as I see it. Now, you don't know much about that because it doesn't make it into the sermons very much until today. Because I've titled this message with a sarcastic title, and it is How to Be Foolish with Your Faith. So if you want to be foolish with your faith, I'm going to share from this text three of the very best ways that you and I can be Christian fools, drawn from the very language that Paul uses in addressing the Christian's in the Galatian church because of what he saw in them as serious dangers and troubles. And therefore, as we look at these, we want to learn three ways to be foolish Christians. Here's the first. Here's the first. If you want to be foolish with your faith, strive to earn God's love by working at the law. That's the first way that we can be, and honestly, it's the first way that many of us are often foolish with our faith. You know, previously, uh, I had said that Paul's fear in the Christian life, what seemed to be a central concern of his as he reflected on his life and as he ministered to people around him, was that he might live a vain life. And for Paul, living a vain life in many ways was wrapped up in a a possible confusion. And it was confusing the law and the gospel. The law being the righteous expectations and commandments and even threatenings of not living up to his standard, which usually we think of as being encapsulated in the Ten Commandments and then many other commandments in the Bible— But it's distinct from the gospel, which is very different from the law. While the law is a list of commands and things to do, the gospel is actually an announcement, not of things that we need to do, but an announcement of what someone else, Jesus Christ, has done for us. And there's an important distinction there, and this was one of the things that Paul was really concerned about. This is what it meant to him to live a vain life is to confuse those two things in the Christian life and to perhaps even flip them around and and substitute one for the other. And this even extends, as we see this morning, to his care and concern for others. I want you to notice the really strong, emotional, 
you know, maybe even shocking. It's, it would be shocking for us if someone were to call us fools or foolish Christians. But that's what Paul does here because he's, he's really making a clear point. And so this morning, what we want to do as we look at this first truth is to take to heart the seriousness of what he's saying. And not to take the words lightly, but to hear them for what they are because they speak an important truth with an important volume and power. And therefore, we know this must be something really important for us to recognize. Notice what he says in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. He begins with an exclamatory statement, you foolish Galatians. He calls them fools. He uses the word foolish. And actually, you know, the Apostle Paul is writing here in Greek, and the word that he uses is anatoi. Anatoi is a Greek word that's two parts. There's kind of a root word there, which means to know something. It's where we get another kind of fancy English word. Sometimes we say, we talk about sin, and we talk about the noetic effects of sin. That, that's the way that sin has impacted the way that we think. We don't always think clearly about God and ourselves and our world. It's, it's changed how our, our thoughts work, and we're often confused and burdened by that. So there's that root word, noeo, and then at the beginning, the, the prefix an, an. And what this is, creates when you put it together is, a fool is someone who doesn't understand who negates understanding or has a misunderstanding. And so this is what he's saying about them. You misunderstanding Galatians. He's calling them a name for their good because there's something really serious. How serious does something have to be to call someone a name to get their attention? That's what Paul is doing here. It's similar to the way that we might do this. Out in the world, we, we see people who misunderstand and are going the wrong way. And, and when it really gets a hold of us and we, we feel the weight of it and we want to see it changed, we use this kind of language. It's a way of pointing out something really serious. So, so I'm sure that people around the world uh, in other countries could look at us as Americans and say, you foolish Americans, you seem to only care about leisure and materialism and possessions. You see, it would work that way. It would get our attention. It would be striking. Even recently in the news, the world seems to be looking at, at the Russians and saying, you foolish Russians, because of what they've been doing and the way it's awakening the opposition of the world. Or we might say it in a more everyday sense in our families, you foolish teenagers, you're driving so fast. You're not understanding the consequences of recklessness. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to these Christians in Galatia. You foolish Galatians. Now, why does he say this? Why such strong words? What are they misunderstanding? What is making them fools? Notice what he says next in verse 1. Who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Then he says in verse two, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit? That's the Holy Spirit. It's a way of, of encapsulating your conversion what it means to be a Christian, how you came to faith in Christ, how you were united to Jesus and now continue walking with him. Did you receive the spirit? Did you become a Christian? Do you walk with God by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You see, here's that that important distinction between the law and the gospel, and he's pointing out that the core of their foolishness is that they have mixed it up. Their lives are, are displaying a worldview or, or a theology, a way of seeing the Christian life that makes you think they trust in their works to know God rather than trusting in the good news that was announced to them, which they heard 
and delivered to them salvation by grace alone. But notice that language again that he uses. It, it, he's sort of stacking one on the other. The first foundation was you foolish Galatians. And then he says something really alarming. Who cast a spell on you? So Paul likens the way they were living the Christian life to what it would be like to imagine a person under a spell, a spell of foolishness, a spell of confusion, of confounding, of mixing up what's most important. Who has cast a spell on you? Now, we're not trying to get into all the Greek words, but it helps a little bit. Actually, the Greek word that he uses when he talks about spell is baskania. And baskania was actually an ancient Greek idea that there could be such a thing as a malevolent gaze that you could cast onto someone that you, you disliked or you were in opposition to and that you could sort of cast a malevolent spell on them by giving them what we call today the evil eye. So this is what he's saying when he uses that word. He, he's painting a picture. Who has cast a malevolent gaze on you so that you can no longer see what's essential to the Christian life and what it means for Jesus to have been publicly portrayed as crucified. You think about that for a minute. Why is that important? It's because by Jesus being publicly portrayed as crucified, the Bible explains it is the, 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 the essence of sacrificial atonement for our sins. The fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose again carries with it a message that there's nothing you could do to save yourself. If you could, why would God the Father send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins if we could save ourselves? It doesn't make any sense. But when we, with eyes of faith, look upon Jesus who's publicly portrayed as crucified we are reminded that our salvation was not and is not accomplished by us. It's accomplished by him. And this is the spell, so to speak, that was cast upon them. You might remember two weeks ago, we considered how Paul was concerned about what he called were some false brothers who were infiltrating the church and, was, and they were trying to take away the freedom of the Galatians, to take away their spiritual freedom, to take away their comfort and their assurance of God's grace. You see? So they were coming in in this way, and it's very similar. There's a connection here because that's one of the messages that was coming into them was this, this kind of spell that confused them, and now they had reversed the Christian life. It, it, they began living sort of the inverse of what it really means to be a Christian. So what is the ultimate way that we live as Christians? The essence of the Christian life is to rest, not work, to rest in the favor of God that is brought to us as a gift purchased by Jesus on the cross. That's the simplest way I know to put it. That's what it means to be a Christian. But what they had done was reversed it. They had become sort of bizarro Christians. If you're into like comic books and Superman, you might remember the DC Comics had a character named Bizarro who was like the the shadow version of Superman. He was a totally different color, totally different attitude. He had similar powers, but he was not using his powers for good. He was backward. He was the reverse. He was bizarro Superman. They, they are bizarro Christians. The way that they think about the Christian life has been flipped upside down so that no longer do they see the, the, their Christian lives as being grounded in, notice this again in verse 2, because this is really important. It cannot be overstated how important this distinction is in the Christian life. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Martin Luther, famous reformer, 
uh, of the 1500s and others of his time and others in church history made a big deal out of the distinction between the law and the gospel. In fact, Martin Luther said something to the effect of, there's no more important or difficult art to the Christian life than knowing the difference between the law and the gospel. Because if you get them mixed up, you flip your, your Christian life upside down. And everything else gets flipped upside down with it as well. All of your assurance, all of your hope and comfort, all of your joy, it's lost, just like, just like bizarro Superman. So notice what he says again. Keep reading this. Let, this is part of preaching the gospel to ourselves and having this reminder. Verse 2, he says, I only want to learn this from you. And it's a rhetorical question. It's not a hard question. It's not, it's not a real serious question. It's a little bit of a sarcastic question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by be- believing what you heard? In other words, did you gain God's favor by doing what he tells you to do and keeping his law? Or did you gain his favor by hearing with faith alone the good news of what Jesus did for you. And we, we obviously, we put it that way. We know what it is. We know our Bibles well enough, and we, we love the gospel here. We know that that's true. But sometimes, sometimes I'm bizarro rush. Sometimes I'm a bizarro Christian. Sometimes you're a bizarro church. You might be that way even right now. It might be the way that you are thinking about the Christian life right now. You're wrapping up God's favor in your works. You think that that's how you can get it or that's how you can keep it. Sometimes I do too. And certainly the Galatians did. And you see what kind of response it got from Paul. It's not a small response. This is not a light matter to him. This is the matter and it is serious. If you want to be foolish with your faith, here's what you should do. Strive to earn and keep God's love by working at the law. Now, here's how you would do that, okay? Two applications of that sarcastic truth do these two things. First, evaluate your day every day, like maybe at the end of the day, look back on it and evaluate your day or your week by tallying up, get out your journal and tally up all of the good law keeping that you did and tally up all of the law breaking that you did and then find your happiness in that balance. That's how you can be a foolish Christian with your faith. And then when you find, and you will, when you find that you're lacking points to the positive obedience then in response to that, the next day, ramp up your good deeds. Really pour on the willpower. Try really hard to do more good deeds the next day and outweigh it. And try to get happy by doing those things. Do you see how silly that sounds? Of course, I'm being sarcastic, right? We're pointing out what it means to be a fool, Here's the second way that we can be fools with our faith. Then, begin your Christian race by grace, but perform your way to the finish. That's the next concern that Paul expresses in this chapter of Galatians. Notice in verse 3, he doubles down on the foolish talk because he's really concerned about this. It's, it's captured his heart. He's on fire to straighten this out and try to bring some, some help and relief and change and, and try to awaken them out of this kind of spell that they're under. Verse three, are you so foolish? Pretty, pretty hard language. After beginning by the Spirit, which is by the gospel, which is by grace, which is by the Holy Spirit's um, independent work of grace in your heart. After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? 
So there's another distinction that's helpful. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same distinction between law and gospel with different words plugged in. It's flesh and spirit. It's just law and gospel put another way. So we see more specifically what Paul is seeing in them. And it's this. If you look at the timeline of the Christian life for these Christians, you can see that they began by the gospel, by the good news announced to them. They hear it with faith and they walk out in the assurance and joy of what Jesus did for them, which they could not do for themselves, meaning that he lived a perfect life in their place. He fulfilled the law on their behalf. And then he died on the cross and rose from the dead, calling them to himself. But having begun by the gospel, they then appear to have foolishly shifted their life strategy to running the race by the law. In modern language, we would call this changing modes. Sometimes you change modes on your iPhone or at home on another device. It's a different way of living. They have shifted the strategy of the Christian life from gospel, which it should be from beginning to end, to starting off with the good news, starting off by grace, and then finishing by works. It would be a little bit like a runner in a race. And the runner begins the race running on his or her feet with good form and good efficiency, running along, conserving the most energy for the end of the race, and running in that nice, smooth cadence. But right as he turns that first mile, he turns a corner, and then he jumps onto his hands, and he tries to run or hand the rest of the race all the way to the finish. Upside down, horribly inefficiently, exerting all of this energy as though totally under a spell, not even understanding what it means to run a race. That's what Paul is saying. And so that's the kind of picture, a different mode has been triggered in their hearts and lives. Listen further to what he says. He says, did you experience so much for nothing? Did you experience so much at that first part of the Christian life? You you had such a clear vision of what it means to be a Christian that you had cast off all of your, your own willpower and all of your legalism and all of your hoping in yourself and what you could do and you were really embracing the good news of Christ for nothing, just to go back to the old way that you were living before you came to faith, the way in which the law written on your heart was compelling you to keep the law, to try to do that first thing, strive to earn God's love by working at the law. He says, if in fact it was for nothing, so then, Does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you? Now he's talking about their ongoing Christian life by your doing the works of the law. I'm telling you, this passage is full. It's pregnant with truth. It is bursting at the seams. You should go back to this passage and read it every day this week. And then keep reading it because it is getting at what is essentially difficult about the Christian life. It is getting at the central problem that you probably feel, I'm sure you do, and that I feel maybe every day of the Christian life. He says, or is it by believing what you heard? Now catch that. Catch the difference. He's talking about the ongoing Christian life, and he's saying this. Let's boil it down. He's asking the question, does God work in your life now as a Christian and do the things that he does for you as someone who belongs to him because you do works of the law? In other words, 
At this moment in your Christian life, you've come to faith, you belong to him, you're moving forward, you have your Bible, you're a member of a good church, you have a community group, you're on the path. Now, does God look down on you on the path? And does he go, hmm, is she keeping the law? Is she doing it enough? I don't think so. Or is he doing Oh, this has been a great week for Rush. Wow. He has read his Bible every day. He's prayed, and he's really, he's really meant it. He meant it more than he did last week. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work some miracles. I'm going to do some good stuff for Rush this week. Right? You see how silly that sounds. But it's not silly, is it? Because that's how you live. That's how you live. That's how I live. I think God does good for me when I do good for him. I think that God does bad for me when I do bad for him. He says instead... It's by believing what you heard. How does God work miracles among you? How does he work his his miraculous powers of change in your life? How does he do it? He doesn't do it because you're keeping the law. He does it by your hearing with faith this good news of his faithfulness and his love and his mercy over and over and over again. And he says, just like Abraham And if you go back to the story of Abraham, you see that Abraham was not someone who was with the program. He was a pagan. When God called him, he was not seeking God. He was not a a Christian. He was far away from God. And God came to him and redeemed him and converted him and then said to him, I'm going to bless the whole world through you and there's nothing you or your sin can do to stop me all by believing. And that's why he says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the reason this is important is because it's probably the most common, most daily error in the Christian life. And that's because there's a spiritual dynamic going on inside of your heart and mine. The Bible is clear, like in Romans, It says that the law is written on our hearts and it's always doing a work of evaluating our deeds. It's either accusing us of doing wrong or defending us when we do right. But the problem is that in your heart and mind is not only the law. In your heart is also sin. This is how it happens. Sin in your heart hijacks the law and twists it upside down. That's the bizarro Superman effect. Twists it upside down, turns it inside out, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves no longer pursuing Christ by grace, but pursuing him by works. Sin elevates the law to a place that it should not be, to do something that it's not intended to do. And so it pulls us, it pulls us in, many of us, toward law righteousness. That's the reason that we, we tend to think of ourselves as better than other people based on the things that we're doing. We compare ourselves to other people and we see, wow, they're really not keeping the law the way that I see myself keeping the law. I'm better than they are. I can feel good about that. At least I'm not like that guy. That's the kind of thing that's happening. And again, you see, you see how, how you would call it, it, it would seem like a spell. It's craziness, right? It doesn't make any sense when you keep it all in context of what the gospel is and what the Bible tells us. Not only is this unhelpful, but Paul says, man, this is really foolish. And it's foolish because it mistakes the role of the law and leads us back into living like legalists. Every single person in this room is a recovering legalist. And until the end, when sin is taken away from us and all things are put right, this is going to be a central problem. 
It's going to be a central struggle for us. Now, here's, what's, here's what happens. When legalists like you and me hear all of this gospel talk, and we hear all of this grace talk, our legalistic hearts say something, something sort of like this. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's all well and good, but don't go crazy on the grace. I mean, you still have to live a good life. You still have to keep the law, right? And there is, in some sense, truth to that, right? Because the law is not banished. It's not taken away from us. Jesus hasn't canceled it, but rather, what has he done? He has fulfilled it. He's changed our relationship to it. So that no longer are we doing good deeds so that we can earn God's favor, but rather we are obeying the law because we already have God's favor. We're not getting with the program because if we don't, God's going to get you. We are obeying him and seeking him in obedience because he already has us. And because no matter what we do, he is never going to let us go. At every point in the history of Christianity, this has been like a top five, big top tier issue. And that's why it comes up a lot. If you you read the classic faithful voices of those who have gone before us and have tried to keep handing down this rich truth of the gospel, you hear them talk about this. Here, for instance, is one. And this helps us a lot to keep this in mind. Because what the issue is, is when our hearts hear about the gospel and they say that thing like, whoa, what about the law, right? That's the question. What about the law? We have to get this straight. We need to keep everything in its proper place and distinction. John Calvin was one of those voices, another reformer alongside Martin Luther, who talked about this clearly, and so I'll share something small from him that I think can help us. And it has to do with what he calls the threefold use of the law. Remember, the law, God's commands and expectations, sometimes codified in the Ten Commandments and beyond. What are the three uses of the law? This is important because the reason we're struggling so much in the Christian life is we don't understand the use of the law, right? We are substituting it in the place of the gospel as the thing that satisfies us, saves us, keeps us, assures us, right? So what are these uses? Here they are, three uses. You should see them on the screen. If you're taking notes, you can write them down, think about them more. Number one is the teaching use of the law. The law is like a teacher. This is familiar to us maybe because we know from the Bible that the law is useful to show us our need for Christ. The law is shows us that we can't save ourselves. It shows us all of the ways that we've gone wrong. It keeps doing that accusing, 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 accusing work, and it leaves us without any grace. You know, the the law doesn't make any promises that we can get out of this by keeping it. It just drives us into the dirt. That's the teaching use of the law. That's what all of us have experienced if we've come to faith in Jesus. The law worked under God's power and grace to show us we're sinners, and to point us or leave us without any hope except going to Jesus who is full of grace and mercy for sinners like us. The second use is the civil use. When you think of the word civil, you might think of the word society. It has to do with how we live our lives on a daily basis and restraining our sin. Um, Maybe a little like guardrails on the highway. It keeps us from running off the road. So the law written on our hearts and the law written in our communities, the rules that we all agree or or have been approved for us to follow, they kind of hem us in. And that's why the world is not as bad as it could be. If we took those restraints down, it would be total mayhem, crazy, purge-type situation around the world. But the law is working and doing this good work. And then the third use of the law is the normative use, the daily use. It's the way that the law tells us how as Christians who want to glorify God and rest in his grace, 
should then live our lives out of gratitude for what he's done for us. That's what the third use of the law is. But what I want you to notice is there's no righteous use. There's no keep the law, get righteous. There's no favor use. There's no keep the law, win points with God. Keep the law, store up for yourself special things that have nothing to do with grace. There's no assurance use, which is keep the law, feel like a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Our assurance, our righteousness, God's favor comes only from gospel use. It only comes from hearing the grace of God over and over again in the gospel. And this is beautiful because it's what makes the law no longer a burden to us. Now, that, that probably doesn't land. That doesn't land easily for you or me because that's probably not matching. I'm not sounding like I'm matching your experience of the Christian life all the time because you do feel like the law is a burden, right? And the law is a burden to us. When we're in that legalistic mindset, when we're under the spell, it is incredibly burdensome. It's crushing because all we can see are all the ways we're failing. And we can't find any way out by law-keeping because I already broke those laws. Those are no good. I can't do those. It's just like this mountain. It's this big problem. But we're reminded of the truth, and this is what we need. We have to have the continual flood of the gospel over and over and over again. This, this whole thing dies hard. It won't die until the very end. But hear these words. Talk back to your inner legalist. You have to. You have to talk back to your legalist and talk back to your enemy. And you can use words like this, even the words of Jesus, Matthew 11. If you're having a hard time believing this whole thing about gospel and grace and it's better than the law, Jesus himself said, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me. Because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and, I, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. On the days that you and I feel the burden and weight of the law, and you feel heavy, it's a signal I've got to go back to Jesus because this is not what it means to live under Jesus the master. This is what it means to live under law the master. That, that's the difference. One is burdensome and one is light. So when Paul says these things and he's calling names like foolish, fool, spell, he's saying it with ultimate, ultimate compassion because he's talking to people who are burdened. He knows they're burdened. He's not saying, get with the program. Don't you know the law says salvation is by grace? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you're so burdened by your misunderstanding what you have been given in the gospel. Come back. Come back to it. It's easy. It's light. It's the place of joy and assurance. It's the place where, where things work out according to God's plan, he keeps calling them back. But sometimes we don't want that. We would rather be fools. So if you want to be foolish with your faith, then here's what you should do. In your mind, when you think about your testimony and you think about where you are in life, you should divide your Christian life into two legs. The first is a very short, early gospel leg. And the rest of your life is a long, hard law leg. 
if you want to be a fool as a Christian, if you really want to take on that burden and you want to be crushed and defeated in the Christian life, that's what you should do. Think and live your life as two legs. Rather than what Paul is saying, he is saying your Christian life is actually one leg. It's one long gospel leg. That's what the race is. But we need help. We need help. Or else we're going to live in constant burden, seeking self-righteousness, and in crushing misery. But there's something much better for us. And here's the last truth of how to be foolish with your faith. If we were to sum all of this up, we might put it this way. Think little of God's grace and think much of your works. Boiled down, this is really what's happening in Galatia. This is what Paul is seeing in lots of, in lots of Christians. Listen, just let's be honest. This is what Paul sees when he looks in the mirror. He does not have this problem licked. It's his own problem. That's why he's serious about it. He understands it. He's experiencing it. And that's why he's trying to put it into it and bring help to it. But this is, this is the way. This is the problem. When we think little of God's grace and much of our works. That's just another way to put it. Notice what he says in verse 7. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Those who have faith, there's more of that language. It's between works and faith. And he's saying those who have faith, they belong to Abraham. They're in that covenant of promise that God created with Abraham to bless the whole world. He says, now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the people of the world, by faith. And told the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. So the gospel is not just a New Testament thing. It's actually an Old Testament thing. God preached the good news of salvation by pure grace alone, in pure good news alone, to Abraham beforehand. That's what he says. Saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Right? It's not because Abraham's going to go do all the good stuff and then the world's going to receive the inheritance of it. It's because Jesus would do all the good stuff and he would deliver it by an announcement of good news. He says, verse 9, consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. He keeps lifting it up. You hear it over and over again. He keeps lifting up the priority of faith. He is not thinking little of God's grace or little of the work of faith, that is, hearing the good news with faith, but much of it. So what is Paul trying to do? Put everything in its place. Big on grace less on law. So that law is kind of like the handmaiden to the queen who is the gospel. It's in service to the gospel. It's the way that we live because of the gospel. It is the implications of the gospel that, that, that flow out of our lives. And this is the way that he wants us to keep coming back to the Christian life. Listen, this has to be strategy number one. Of our enemy. In fact, C.S. Lewis was on to this. You know who C.S. Lewis was? He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other books, including one book which is amazing called The Screwtape Letters. And it's basically a, a book that imagines what a conversation would be like between Screwtape, who is like a lead demon uh, in the devil's army, and Wormwood, who is an underling. And Screwtape is always giving advice to Wormwood about how he should go. That's actually kind of a sarcastic book as well. It's how he should go about um, oppressing Christians and, and casting the spell on them. Listen to what he says at one point. Screwtape says to Wormwood, listen, catch him, that is the Christian that he's trying to assault, catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit, he's feeling humble, he's feeling grateful for grace, he sees his need and he's thankful for what Jesus has done for him, Catch him in the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. 
and almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. Do you see what Paul is concerned about? He's concerned that if we walk out this legalistic way of living, it takes all of our eyes off of God and puts our eyes on ourselves. So that even in the moment when we see something rich that God is doing in us, we attribute it as our own because we want to have that law-keeping, we want to have that self-righteousness, and then in with the spell. This is all about thinking and valuing grace little. And friends, listen, this is a plague. Not only personally, it is a plague corporately in churches everywhere, in our church. It is an essential tactic of our enemy. It changes everything. And in a church, it changes even the way we interact with each other. It changes the way that we look and, at each other and minister to each other. It changes whether or not we have compassion for each other. As we come to a close, hear these words as well from Romans when Paul says, For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment uh, on those who do such things is based on the truth, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, you know, this law-breaking, and yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Now, what is going on here? Why is there this judgment? Why are, is Paul talking to these Christians about the way they're judging each other? Why are they doing that? Why are they looking at each other and casting aspersions upon each other because they're not keeping up? They're not keeping up with the law. They're not doing the right things. They're not keeping all the rules. Why are they doing that? Paul tells us, verse 4 in Romans 2. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint, his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is what leads you to repentance. You see? You see it's over and over again. It's central. It is the problem. The problem is too much law, not enough gospel. Getting them out of order. This is important to every church. This letter, Galatians, as well as many of the other letters that Paul wrote are written to churches which means that we have to deal with this as a church. We are as a church, just like we are as individuals, on a spectrum somewhere between law and gospel. The question is, where are we? We can know a little bit about that if we just take some time, even individually, to think about the way we think. Think about the way you feel about your life. Think about what really bugs you and really bothers you. Think about the way you relate to God. Think about the way maybe we as a church relate to God so that we can see the importance of this. And this is the last use because maybe if we wanted to be fools as a church, we could do this very thing that's happening here. We could collectively choose to be a foolish church. And the way that we can do that is by keeping our value low on gospel. Anytime somebody gets a little too big for their britches in the gospel area, pull them down. Pull them. We can't have too much gospel in here. Because if we have too much gospel, everybody's going to go wild. Right? They're not. That's what keeps us from going wild. You want to know how to escape addiction, it's not by the law. It's by the gospel. It's by having a, a brighter vision of who God is and what he has done for us so that our hearts are filled with gratitude and it motivates us to fight against whatever is the thing that's captivated our hearts. That's the way that it works. We need help. And this text is particularly helpful to us. Of course, we do not want to be foolish Christians. 
We don't want to be a foolish church. Therefore, we've got to keep striving by grace to hold the gospel high and to keep striving by grace to obey God because of his good news, not in order to get it. That is central to the Christian life. Let me invite you to stand as we pray together and prepare our hearts to sing again. Please stand as you're able. And, um, and also for me to encourage anyone who may be hearing this, that if you're not a Christian today, I hope this would be the day of your conversion, that you would somehow see by God's grace the way that he has given himself for us in the person and work of Jesus so that he could save us and bring us into this bright, beautiful light of the gospel and that it would sort out our lives and delight us and comfort us and strengthen us as a church. We invite you to talk with one of the pastors after the service or someone else who's here or maybe even during the week so that we can talk more about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks today because you are full of grace and mercy. We give you thanks because the gospel was your idea. The gospel is your plan. And God, we pray that you would forgive us because often we substitute our plan, the law plan, that we might justify ourselves by keeping your law rather than glorifying you for grace by keeping your law. We pray that you'd help us, help us to see this more clearly. It's really hard, as you know, for people like us, but you're up to the task. Your grace is up to the task, and we pray that you would lift our countenance and cause us to look upon you with gratitude for all that you are doing for us and that you're doing it by grace alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.